G'day and welcome to Dog Talk. I'm Dan Camilleri. And I'm Laura. We'd like to start by thanking Enduro for their ongoing support in bringing you our live weekly Q&A. Tonight we are fortunate enough to be speaking with Scott Amon from Baru Kelpies. Scott will be picking him here. He thinks he's asked the best question tonight and uh, that person will win a bag of Enduro Plus high energy food for working dogs with real kangaroo meat. Good evening, Scott. Hello, Laura. Hello, Dan. How are you? How are you going? I'm fine, thank you. That's good. How'd your day go, mate? Yeah, saw a bit of sun, as you can see, but um, yeah, just out in the tractor for a few hours today and looking after dogs, same old story, never fails, but yeah, pretty good, mate. Pretty good day. Pretty warm one today. It's been cool here. I think it's been cool everywhere, but good now. Warming uh, up. Very, very cool. So to start off, tell us a bit about yourself. Oh, geez, that could be scary. Um, yeah, I, I was born on the northern beaches of Sydney um, back in the 60s when it was a lot different to what it is now. And um, my father, prior to having family, having us kids, he um, he had a small farm at Oxford Falls uh, up in the bush there, sort of behind the northern beaches. And they had um, a piggery there and they had poultry and other bits and pieces like that. So um, he was pretty well versed in, in that sort of life. And um, him and mum won a block, a bush block in a ballot, had a ballot system in those days, and they won a, a bush block at a place called Lambie Heights, which is up behind Brookvale, um, backed onto about uh, oh, a few hundred acres of bush. And um, that's where I grew up in the bush there, just trapping rabbits, catching yabbies. And um, yeah, I knew every inch of that bush like the back of my hand. That's where we grew up. And um, yeah, that's, that's the beginnings anyway. And um, th then they took me... They took me uh, on a lot of trips to different places, mainly, mainly only in New South Wales, nothing fancy, and that's where my, my love of sheepdogs came in when they took me out to the Southern Highlands in New South Wales. Tell us a bit about that, mate, how, how that passion come about. Yeah, well, as, as a family, like a lot of families, particularly back in the 60s and 70s, I suppose, um, everyone had a dog. We always had a dog, um, chooks and all that sort of stuff. So, um, and I, yeah... Or, so I guess you, um, you're drawn to, to some animals and not to others. And I was always drawn to the dogs that we had. Um, and then I guess when I was probably, I must've been seven or eight or something like that. We started going out and staying in the shearers quarters on a, on a property out of bigger in the Southern Highlands, New South Wales, just west of Crookwell. Um, uh, that's where, um, Jake Nolan comes from actually the, the yeah. bigger area. So, um, yeah, really cool place. The bigger Hills are pretty renowned for being pretty rugged and, um, wild weather changes and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, so I spent a lot of time as a kid out there, uh, trout fishing, shooting, shooting bunnies and foxes and, um, and goats and things like that. And, um, virtually every year for, oh, probably over 30 years. We, um, yeah, well into my, uh, well into when I had children, um, we'd go to bigger every year. And, um, so when I was young and I saw the sheep dogs working, the sheep in the hills are bigger it really got under my skin and I sort of said to myself, as soon as I'm old enough, I'll, I'll get my own working dog. And yeah. And, and that happened. <laughs> so that happened in 84, 1984. Um, 84, mate. Out. Jesus. Yeah. You don't, you don't look that old, mate. You're doing well. <laughs> oh, I feel it some days. Don't worry about that. But um, no, no, I bought a, I bought a really nice um, dog, strangely enough, and probably um, put a smile on the face of some, but, it was um so so in that bigger region the 
the people I knocked around with who owned the properties there, they loved their sheepdogs to be three-quarter Kelpie, quarter Border Collie. So they'd often they'd often um, breed for that mix. It, it suited them for one reason or another. And um, so that's what I decided to get because these guys said, you know, that they're, they're, they're the best dogs, rah, rah, rah. So there was an old fella, some people would remember him, um, Cedric Old at Collector, uh, down towards Canberra, I suppose. And he... Um, he had a stud and used to advertise in the land newspaper every single week. Um, Darabee um, working dogs. He primarily imported collies and he bred a lot of collies. Um, but he also specialised in doing that three-quarter um, Kelpie quarter-border collie yeah. cross. So um, I rang him up from the land and he, um, yeah, ordered a pup and he left an old chaff bag on his gate there and I found his place at the back of Lake George there um, in 84 and... Um, yeah, we. Uh, I picked this beautiful, just jet black dog that was looked like it looked like a, a just a straight black kelpie. Um, so his father was a was a black and tan purebred kelpie, and his mother was a first cross collie kelpie. And um, mate, to this day, he's probably one of the smartest dogs I've I've ever had. Um, but then again, you know, the next year we Trish and I started travelling around Australia, so he was my shadow for um, for years and years and years. And um, mate, that dog that dog could just about speak and. And he understood a lot more than, you know, most dogs I've ever seen. So he was, he was pretty freakish and um, that amazed me. When I lost him, I said, right, uh, that was in the early, geez, when would it have been? Um, that would have had, it would have had to have been the late 80s. And I said, all right, I'm going to set up a, um, I'm going to set up, I'm going to breed a few Kelpies. I'm going to source the best Kelpies. And we just poked along from there. And I read a lot of books and did a lot of homework. And um, I liked the way Tony Parsons spoke about how a dog should work. Um, yep. I wasn't interested. I was interested in paddock dogs more than yard dogs. That I don't know, maybe the bigger influence had something to do with that. Um, but, um, yeah, and, and I liked the way Tony Tony wrote that he thought a dog should work. And uh, we bought our first dog off Tony in the very early 90s, um, a young bitch. She was foundation of our stud and... Um, yeah, we bought. Then we just kept buying dogs, and and the story goes on. We'll probably get to sort of what happened there. But in the end, Tony started sending. I, I sort of, I guess, I won his confidence um, with some of my achievements with some of my early dogs, with a little bit of cattle trialing and stuff like that, and um, and what I was doing with them. And um, he started sending me entire litters and allowing me to select what I wanted um, out of entire litters or what I thought was worth going on with, and. Um, yeah, I can. I'll never be able to thank Tony Parsons enough for that because that's what's given me every single dog I've got here at the moment. I went through a lot of dogs. There's, there were some litters I didn't pick a pup out of. I, I sold them and passed the money on to Tony. Um, it was a lot of work, um, but it was well worth it because there was out of I don't know a dozen or more litters over years. There was um, there was probably a dozen, nearly a dozen dogs. There was probably there was probably eight to ten dogs that I thought were outstanding and I kept them and, and they're the foundation of everything I've got here now. Beautiful. So we might have, sorry. You go. you go. I might have skipped. I know you got a list of questions there, so I might have skipped a few things, but <laughs> You're right. the, story That's right. rolled, the story rolled on. So I thought. <laughs> Why Kelpies? Oh, well, I've always taken pretty hard roads in life. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I thought I'd um, no, no. That we probably suit each other, you know. I'm a bullfed kelpie's a bullfed. Um, 
they can think for themselves. Um, and, and look, I, I guess primarily because I live for this country and, and what it stands for, Australia, and they're the Australian dog. And, um, yeah, it sounds a bit romantic, but that's probably why. But, um, yeah, and they suit me, and, I, and I, I'm glad I went that. And that's not to say I don't like colleagues. I, I've handled a fair few colleagues, and I really like them. Um, but Kelpie's the number one for me, and, and that won't change. I couldn't imagine it'll change. So how do you go about using a dog in your day-to-day life at the moment? Uh, mate, well, I might skip back a bit just to tell you how I, you know, when I first bought that first working dog, I had no idea how to, how to work a dog. You know, yeah. yeah, I'd seen plenty of them work, but I had no idea how to actually train and work them. And I just trained in, in basic obedience, and um, and that was good fun, a learning curve for me, learning curve for him, of course. Um, and then uh, we were travelling around Australia, and um, I taught him to be able – I could point a person out of a crowd and get him to go and pull them down and hold them on the ground. He, he was a pretty freaky dog. We'd do all sorts of things. And so we were doing a few things in Western Australia and um, picking tomatoes, and there were some – rogue horses coming in and knocking over some of the crops when we were working on these tomatoes. And a mate said to me, oh, I can get rid of these horses. And I said, oh, I'll send my dog over and get rid of them, you know. And um, he said, he wouldn't do that. And I said, yeah, 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 watch this. And I went, anyway, I, we sort of did that and I could send him and he was pretty impressed. And in that same region, there's a lot of feral goats. Um, it's it's near Carnarvon and, and Shark Bay is not far from there. Um, we were working on a property, 350,000 acre property, Tamala Station at Shark Bay, a little bit there. And um, it's a lot of feral goats, and um, I, I used to skin a lot of goat, um, tan a lot of goat skins, and um, we ate goats a lot when we were travelling. Um, so we were on these huge cliffs, they're called the Zydorf Cliffs, um, and the Indian Ocean just smashes up against them, and um, it's where the desert almost meets the ocean, it's, it's quite impressive country, and as I said, huge amounts of feral goats, um, and they... I didn't know how to work this dog, but he had working instincts, which you could see. And it was unreal. We'd, we'd go up and, and, and mob up these these goats, just me and the dog together, and he'd hold them in these caves. So we'd get them up in these caves where there was no exit, and he'd hold them in the back caves, and I'd just walk in and pick whatever goat I wanted, throw it over my shoulders and walk it back to camp. I've got photos of our of our car set up on a fishing spot there called Camp Rock, and off one of the dog chains is a, is a nanny goat, and... Um, and yeah, and, and her young one's in the fridge already ready to eat that night. So, well, yeah. yeah, and you know, so I, I couldn't command him very much at all on stock. I just, um, he had, it was a dog with a fair bit of eye and he just had enough eye to hold these goats up to, to sort of help me push around and hold them up and I'd just walk in and take what I wanted. So it was pretty rough stuff, but I, that was the foundation of it. Um, and then now from day to day for probably, we left the Northern Beaches um, back in the late 90s and um we made enough money to get out of there and, and get a farm. Um, we've we've bought and sold a few farms up here, and I've leased a fair few properties. And um, Neville King from the Buckaroo Stud, uh, he, um, you know, I quizzed him a bit on what sort of cattle he reckoned be good good for dogs and what have you, and he suggested Brahmin content cattle. And anyway, yeah, back in two thousand and or just after that, we started with Brahmin cattle and sheep for training dogs and. Um, at one stage there, we had, um, I don't know, probably um, 80 or 90 um, Brahmins we brought down from Queensland and we ran them on our own place and we had a few adjoining places. We had to run them down roads to other properties and stuff like that. So, so that was where I, I learned without any training. I hadn't been to a clinic or anything then, but I just read as much as I could in books. And um, 
yeah, we, we managed pretty well with these cattle. And um, then we started, yeah, investigating clinics and, and going to, we've been to many clinics, the Greg Prince clinics, you name it. Um, and um, and we've slowly honed ourselves uh, from there. But uh, look, the priority was, um, I wanted dogs to get a job done. And, um, and Brahmins tested them, which I liked. And I like Brahmins because... Um, if you let your emotions run too wild with Brahmins and things aren't going your way and you rev up, they'll punish you for it. And I think that teaches you more um, than sort of getting away with things. So um, Brahmins will be as quiet as mice if you're really good about how you work them. Um, but if you push them too hard with your dogs or yourself and you can turn the quietest animals into absolute fruit loops and you want to be good at fencing and putting panel, welding panels back together and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's I sort of worked out a fair bit of that myself. But along the way, you know, John Roston, um, Robert Cox clinics. John Roston was a big help for many years, um, and I just found it takes a lot of years for it all to come together and for you to put it in into practice. And um, meanwhile, we were breeding quite a few dogs, and we we're making a certain amount of our income from from kelpies. Have done for, um, oh, I, I guess well over twenty years now. Um, and um, I don't know, we had a bit of a tally the other day and we've probably, we haven't registered all the dogs we've bred, but um, we've bred in excess of a thousand pups and they've all been for the, for, for, for proper work out there in the working industry. And um, we get very few um, dogs coming back, which is pretty good. So um, you soon, if you're selling dogs to the commercial market, you soon find out what your breeding's like because um, people won't pay good money for a dog and keep it if it's, if it's of no use to them. Yeah, end up with a few pets back at home. <laughs> yeah, well, the only dogs that stay here are dogs that are worth breeding from. We we don't keep pets. Oh, the old retirees, yeah. I guess, are pets. But um, nothing stays here unless it's worth um, unless it's worth breeding from. That's yeah, that's what we had to do. I mean, we just we've had huge numbers of dogs. It's such a it's such a big job to do properly. I think um, it grinds it when we we've done twenty odd years of you know up to fifty dogs sometimes a year cleaning pens and um, yeah, we keep a pretty, pretty tidy place here. I don't like all the piles of excrement that people bloody um, pile up in some places. It's not for me. Um, I've got to go out there and grab dogs and work them through the morning and afternoon and I want a clean environment to work in. So um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work and, and, and yeah, a lot of money too, feeding them and, and vet bills and all that sort of stuff. Looking after them properly, right? I think so. Yeah. 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 So these days, how do you use your dogs day to day? Uh, pretty much day to day, it's only small shifts. Um, in, in winter, if we've if we've grown ryegrass, I'll use dogs, probably a team of dogs, to put cows and calves on um, on ryegrass, and I'll and I'll sort of I'll either strip feed it and take them off, or I'll um, just take them into a paddock, and the minute the first cow lies down, I'll take them off. So I just give them short periods. I use um, dogs to take them off all the time. They often don't want to come off. Um, obviously in winter, you're putting them on lush feed, but I don't want them trampling it and ruining it all. So we often just put them on and off um, once or twice a day. With our sheep, you know, we have, well, sometimes up to 100 head of sheep here, which isn't a great deal, but um, they can roam down into the into the bushland here and what have you. And we try and bring them back to home every night because um, it's a pain it's it's a pain otherwise dogs end up getting into them and we, and we lose 
we've lost a lot to dogs over the years. So we try and bring them back somewhere near a home paddock or a mesh paddock or something like that. So the dogs aren't doing a lot. Look, the most things we're doing is I'm trying to keep on top of keeping young ones going um, and starting properly. So my priority is nearly always on, we sell a lot of started pups um, so that people can see what they're buying um, natural ability wise. And um, so, so that takes a lot of time when you've got 20 or 30 dogs here, they've, all, they've got to be run a couple of times a day and then you've got to do a bit of training on some older ones, some younger ones and, and just keep rolling them through. Um, so we're working stock every day. A lot of it's training these days up in my training pens, not far from the dog run there. Um, and yeah, just shifting little mobs of cattle. When I say little mobs around, you know, 60, 80 at a time. Um, we're under stock at the moment, but we, we'd like to have a couple of hundred head on here at the moment, but they're just too expensive to um, to stock up too much at the moment. So there's only about 70 head here at the moment. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And, and tell us a bit about your current team. Yeah, well, geez, it's, um, it's really different um, at the moment because we've just retired a whole heap of um, old sires and dams. So you've got uh, Karawara Boozer, Karawara Possum, brother and sister. They're both, well, Boozer died um, last year and um, Possum's retired with my son. Um, old Baru Glider, Baru Billy. Um, there's just a whole bunch. So our, our early crew of, of, say, 10, well, not early crew, but our main crew of breeders 10 years ago has just been rolled over and um, all these young ones are progeny of them. So I've got a, I've got a young, Billy was a pretty hard, tough dog and um, I've got a son of his who's, uh, who you got to see the other day, Dan, and he's um, he's a chip off his old man's block. So he's um, he's a bit of a hammer if you need it and there's a couple of other hammers here and then um, and then there's just some, yeah, some nice, clean, tidy shepherding dogs that have got um, a little bit of clean nose bite on on cattle um, and generally don't harass them because um, it doesn't take much to harass these Brahmins and rev them up. So we just try and keep them calm and quiet. So the, yeah, a whole bunch of new ones. Um, we've reduced our team to roughly a dozen dogs now, which is the least amount of dogs we've had for over 20 years. Um, it's like a holiday right at the moment. It's, it's really good. Um, and um, we can throw all those dozen in the truck now and start travelling. So we had to do a bit of wiener breaking in Queensland next year, um, catching up with a lot of clients up through Queensland, Northern Territory, um, Victoria, New South. So we're going we're starting to do a bit of travel with these dogs. We're just setting up for it now. Um, and yeah, a little bit of little bit of work with our clients and stuff like that. So um, yeah, whole new teammate of young ones. Beautiful. What type or style of dog do you prefer? Yeah, I guess the um, obviously as we've spoken, I I like um, a paddock style dog first and foremost. But I also very much appreciate and enjoy a dog that'll um that'll work the yards well. Um, and I love to watch a good a good dog backing a dog that's a good backer back with um with purpose and um. Yeah, so we've got a few of those. We don't push that very much. Some of our older dogs didn't start back until they were seven or eight years old, but they were still um, they were still natural backers once you got them started. Um, I guess most people who come here and look at my dogs over the past 20 years have said the most outstanding thing about my dogs, and I'd have to agree, is um, they've probably got a bit of extra break um, over many of the other modern-day Kelpies that are, that are around. 
um, or your general runner kelpies that are around. They got they got a bit a bit wider, a square, a break, and um, and a bit bigger arc and cast, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and what I've tried to do over twenty years is get um, what some people refer to as uh, as strength. Um, is probably more force in my words. I see strength as a dog that draws a line in the sand with any stock, sheep, goats, cattle, and will not let them pass that and will put it virtually its life, its body on the line to stop them in a clean and tidy fashion. Um, whereas I think other people see strength as a dog that can push large numbers of stock through small openings, if you know what I mean. But, um, yeah. but, but I think that's more forceful dogs, in, in my opinion. I'm not... Of course, I of course I like force. We all need force um, at times for different jobs, um, particularly if I've got using lambs that uh, the creek comes up and I've got to get them across some some gullies on the way home. You need a fair bit of force there, and I've got a few dogs that'll do that, but not every every one of my dogs. I, I look at that as a bit of rougher work. Um, but when I'm working cows and calves and 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 educating cattle, and we do a bit of um, weaner education for people around the district. Um, I want really clean dogs. I want clean, honest dogs that just look, will, will, if an animal runs, they'll kick out in an arc, pull up directly in front of it with plenty of space and look it in the eye and say, you'll stop because I ain't moving. And if you get to come to me, you'll get stung. And they'll get stung cleanly. And, and to me, that's the type of dog I want. I, I don't like shouldering dogs. Um, I've been taught from, by, by the men that I respect that shouldering dogs are a no-no. Um, that they'll create all sorts of havoc in, in, in a paddock environment and on touchy stock. Um, and I believe that. I'm not saying shouldering dogs are no good for yard work, but um, there's, there's, a, there's, there's probably a time and a place for them. But then they're not my cup of tea. And I think, um, I think it's good that there's different lines of Kelpies um, probably directed for different specific purposes. Um, because if we all bred to the same dogs and we all like the same dogs, the Kelpie would already have been bred into a corner and we'd be, and, and the breed would be buggered. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And you, you mentioned there a bit about sheep work and, and cattle work and what you liked. What do you think, um, well, what do you believe makes a good sheep dog versus a good cattle dog? Oh, that's a really good question and it's, I don't think it's the easiest one to answer, but I think generally speaking, I believe it's the same dog strange as that might sound um that's a little bit broad ranging because um I, I on the same token i'd say that i don't think a genuine um good yard dog would make a good cattle dog sometimes they do but but not always um the, i think um Again, look, it depends what stock you're moving, mate. If you're trying to move hard, if you're trying to move large numbers of stock through yards, you want a different dog to, if you're going out on really light sheep, goats, cattle, and you've got to pull them out of the scrub or in scattered areas, um, the yard dog's not what I'm trying to pursue. So yep. um, a cattle dog, a sheep dog, um, I still want the same attributes, mate. So I'm primarily looking for those paddock oriented dogs. Um, I want them, um, same thing, mate, that dog I said I like to get around its cattle if you get a runaway or a couple of runaways, clean around its cattle, give it heaps of distance, give it good arc, pull up, and it's got to go to the top of the dog if it's going to, if it's going to get over it. Um, I want them to do the same feral goats. That's what all my goat clients want. Same dog. 
Same dog that kicks itself out an arc and drops in that path that the Billy's trying to make an escape route. Yep. With so um, so I th- I think I think you can have really good sheep dogs and really good cattle dogs as the same dog. I think if they get if they don't get enough sheep work in their life, but and they get primarily cattle work, they can they can be they can lose their panache, their class on sheep, um, because they don't need quite that sensitivity. But if you work them on both all their lives, I reckon they can be a really classy sheep dog. And they can be a really firm, high quality um, cattle dog as well. That's my opinion. But um, plenty would beg to differ, I would think. But that's fine. We've all got opinions, mate. We have, mate. <laughs> we have. What are you looking for or thinking about um, before you consider breeding a litter or future joining? Yeah, I suppose um, number one for me, and it, and it and it harps back to what we've been talking about is um, I want to see from the very beginning, um, once that pup starts working, I don't really care what, what age it starts working, but once it starts working, I want to see a natural inclination to want to gather and collect stock and not just rush them. Um, it's not essential, but I like to see a natural stop and a feel. Um, so I, I, just don't, I just don't want to see dogs barreling in to stop. I mean, yeah, look, I must say there's the odd pup I've started and, and I think probably started 600 pups or something. Um, there's the odd pup I've started that does start pretty rough and with a little bit of tuition, you can get it out and it, and it does get a feel for its stock. But then I think in that situation, you probably haven't seen the true dog start. All you've seen is a bit of um, anxiety in a pup get going and they do a bit of wool classing and do a bit of rough stuff that's not really their work. And then if you push them out a bit and hold them off their stock a bit, they start to think, but they need to do it naturally. I, I want to see those natural attributes, shepherding, gather, collect, hold together, and want to control stock. Okay, and then of course you do need dogs that want to shift stock as well. You um, you mentioned a bit before about um, shouldering, uh, and you're known or your dogs are known for good casting and heading ability. How important do you believe that is? Well, if you're breeding for paddock dogs, it's everything. Um, yeah. And I believe, I mean, we, we've all had many discussions over the years about what's the most important thing in any working dog. And natural ability is number one, as far as I'm concerned. If you don't have natural ability, you don't have a working dog. All you've got yeah. is a pet. So natural ability, number one. And, mate, heading ability, um, I can see the reasons why some people who do a lot of driving of their stock, and I, and I primarily drive my stock. Um, so, yeah, I fight with some of my dogs for that, that have got the really strong heading instinct. But... um. I want them to have that because I can send those dogs and not have to worry about them. I don't have to keep an eye on them, make sure they behave themselves. Uh, if, if they've got those attributes I spoke about from the start, they want to kick out and gather and collect, hold together and control stock rather than just get in and rev them, um, you can then trust a dog out of sight. Yeah. So I think you should be able to turn your back on all your dogs and, and walk away and know that they're going to look after the job, job fine. Um, Again, I'm not doing huge amounts of, um, of sheep yard work and I'm not working at, 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 um, at um, sale yards and things like that and, and pushing large numbers of sheep through. But um, my dogs do. My dogs have done it for 20 years. Um, uh, I've got clients all over the place that work at sale yards and, um, and, and a lot of my dogs have done it really well with, with not a bit of bark. That's one thing that my dogs um, are very light on with. Um, even that my dogs have a lot of natural backing ability, 
and and good presence in the yard and, and are able to shift stock well in the yards. Very very little bark in these dogs. Um, and and that doesn't bother me at all. I mean, don't get me wrong. You still want one or two on your team that have got a bit. Yeah, I'm a great and, and I'm a great believer in teams of dogs. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Different days, different situations. Um, the dog you want sometimes can vary. Um, there's no point in going out there and using your hammer for everything. Use them when you need them. Put them away and then drop your softer dogs out and just do it all as light as you can. So um, I think it's more about stockmanship. I think too many people look at what the dog's doing. I think we need to start ignoring what the dog's doing and have a look at what our stock are doing in the paddock. Cool. Question here from Jack Briscoe. Uh, which plays a bigger part in breeding a litter of pups, bloodlines or natural work? Um, well, bloodlines don't mean anything unless they've got the natural work in them. So I don't handle a, do I don't handle a bloodline that I don't think has got natural work in it. So natural work to me is everything. Um, but but I'm not quite sure what Jack's trying to get out there. I, I, I partially get it, but I certainly um, – I certainly think line breeding is essential because I believe if you've got what Jack describes as a bloodline, so a style of dog that's been bred a certain way, and you go and put the wrong dog to it or the, or, 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 or take, um, you, you know, breed the wrong way and outcross, you can undo uh, 60 years of line breeding in, in, one, in one mating. So I'm a great believer in the repetition of influential sires and dams that have a similar way of work. Um, and I, uh, to be honest, I, I, I do similar things with my livestock. If I've got a, because we, you know, our, our, our female Brahmins are our, are our main breeders. Um, they're our calf factories. We put different types of bulls over them. Um, if I get, if I decide one year or a few years to keep heifers here, and I might have put a Charolais bull over a Brahmin cow, and there's a really and, and there's good good heifer calves in there, and we keep them because it's such an outcross to start with. I don't mind putting their father straight back over it because if I've got their father here as a Charolais bull, he's as good a bull as I could afford to buy. So he's he's probably a pretty good bull, and a double cross of him is only going to give you a better animal. So um, I, I'm a great advocate of line breeding, um, a huge advocate, and, I, and there's dangers in it. You've got to be very careful of disease. Um, but the great thing about line breeding is if there is inherent disease in your bloodlines, you find out quicker if you line breed than if you outcross. Outcrossing can can mask the worst canine diseases known to man for many generations without being expressed, whereas that doesn't happen as much in line breeding. Um, and and we, we have line bred from the word go to line bred dogs. I think that's the only way to get consistently. I, I must say that the very early bitches we got off Tony Parsons, I took to outside dogs because I didn't have enough of my own size here and they weren't bred the same way. And I just saw the scattergun effect um, blatantly. I just saw litters of pups that the differential between that litter of pups was just huge. They, they, they weren't similar in work style enough. Now I think... A lot of a lot of my clients and myself and a lot of people I know can now see a dog work and go, that looks like a Baru dog there, just because of the way it works. Um, that doesn't happen if you constantly outcross. Yeah, it, it it won't happen. And that doesn't mean what I'm breeding is the ultimate dog. It is for me, 
and it is for the clients who come to me. Tony Parsons promised me that, um, and, he, and he was 100% right, 30 years ago he said, if you breed proper shepherding dogs that have got correct shepherding ability, um, the world will be the path to your door. And, um, mate, we cannot keep up with um, demand and we're not trying to. Um, I probably let a lot of people down. I, I'd only sell to 50% of people who inquire. And um, I had three calls today and I had to tell all people we've got nothing available at the moment. We won't have anything available for, for ages. So, um, yeah, so, you know, obviously believe in what I do. And the other thing is um, you know, anyone who would like to be a critic of my dogs, um, I invite them to come around here and have a look for themselves because um, the whole time we've been operating, it's been an open start. You come here and I don't decide what dogs you get to see. You come here and if I've got 35 dogs here, I'll show you every single one of them if that's what you want to see. Good, the bad and the ugly, everything in between. So um, I've got nothing to hide. I've got everything to show. And if anything's going to make me look half decent, it'll be my dogs usually. Obviously, because it's not that head. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pot calling the kettle black. So. <laughs> <laughs> we've got a few questions here, so we'll work. Um, we'll work through them. Yeah, go, go. Yep. Um, Amanda Dunbar has asked: Do you get your dogs tested before lime breeding, or is it trial and error? If you have dogs who are po who are not positive or carriers, can a disease still pop up by lime breeding? Okay, so I'm presuming she's maybe referring to. Um, Cerebral ataxia. Um, yep. I, all these young dogs I've got here now, I'm going to get tested. I haven't yet. I'm going to. I didn't. There's no point in getting all my older dogs tested because they're in everything I've got anyway. Um, in, I'm guessing potentially 1,200 pups over 20 odd years, we have genuinely not seen a single case of ataxia. I had one dog that went to America that was an outcross dog, um, and he was uh, connected. He didn't. He never got tested as far as I know, but he did pass on. So one of his progeny was a carrier. Um, yep. We've never seen it once, and we raise a lot of these litters, litters up and start them ourselves. So I'm personally not concerned, but I think it's responsible to get them tested. So I'll be getting all my young ones tested. So that's where I stand on that. I think if you've got a disease, I think we've seen six cases of hip dysplasia out of over a thousand dogs that's that's a tiny tiny percentage and when you start doing homework on that um very similar to elbow dysplasia it often relates to the to the bigger dogs the faster growing dogs and high nutrition planes and and sometimes just being overweight or run too hard like two younger dogs being run behind quads and things like that for distances that they're not ready for um so we've seen, yeah, maybe half a dozen cases of, of hip dysplasia. And in those cases, we've taken their parents in and had them x-rayed and their parents have had perfect hips. We've got all those on record. So a lot of these diseases that some people think are genetic aren't always genetic. Yeah. Um, ataxia certainly is. And um, I think it's a great concern for the Kelpie ataxia, but I feel very, very comfortable. I would have thought that the way we've bred, that we would have seen it by now if we're going to see it. And we have seen also probably... Um, four to five cases in 20-odd years of um, um, epilepsy. Um, but again, I think when you're talking potentially 1,200 pups, that's a very small percentage. Yeah. Um, we wouldn't repeat a mating again if that happened. It happened with two brothers in one litter, so that mating was never repeated. 
Um, and again, it's not epilepsy itself is not always um, a, a, an insect bite to a young dog can can cause epilepsy. Running into a, a pole or another dog at full tilt can do it to a so there's many many things. So um, I think as breeders we have to be incredibly responsible about genetic diseases. I think in the past there's been um, breeders who don't care about it, um, and that offends me personally. Um, I do care about it, but um, each their own. We all operate a bit differently, don't we? So um, yeah, but that's. I hope that answers the question. That's my take on it, anyway. Cool. Uh, Janelle Woodridge has asked you. Um, you have many years of experience breeding pups. Um, have you, in that time, documented details of the of the order the pups were delivered and followed their journey to get to gauge any correlation of similarities in nature with the same experiment on other litters? No, no, we haven't. We haven't haven't done that. But I I can tell you that we we get a lot of pups similar in nature and type, but it's almost a 50-50 thing. So we're great believers that these dogs are a product of their environment to a certain extent. So they're 50% genetic, 50% a product of their environment. And I don't mean from a working ability perspective, I mean how their temperament turns out in the end. Um, so I've seen plenty of pups that have gone out, that we've raised here and they've gone out and they've been quite different. And, and they, you can see they haven't had the rules, boundaries and guidelines that we would put on our young dogs and they suffer for that. So a lot of dogs, a lot of pups um, are basically set backwards in those, in, in those early times, just not getting a handle. We do a lot of stuff with, with young pups, a lot of stuff that we see our bitches do with pups to pull them into line. Um, it's all pretty, it's all pretty gentle, but it's quick. And we, we, we look for softness in our pups. So, um, no, I've never worried about what order they come out or anything like that or how they might turn out. Um, we try pretty hard to put the right dog in the right hands. So if so, if we've got a slightly softer pup in the litter, we'll tell, we'll tell the clients and some people prefer that and other people prefer a more boisterous outgoing dog. Um, we always speak to our clients about that because I, I believe it does matter big time. Cool. Yep. Uh, another question here, Rick Freeman. Um, he has an all black looking dog, but he's actually a border, coll border collie cross Kelpie. Yep. Um, yep. People think he's a good dog and the pup he's recently bought is a one quarter Kelpie going back to Glenlogie Rex and Tunnabara Buster. Um, yep. More recently though, um, with good collie lines in there too, he thinks he should be a really good dog and we'll trial with him. So his question is, why is there not more crosses of that? Um, and yeah, oh, look, why do people cross a border collie cross kill more often? I think there's um, I've I've done out crosses approved by the WKC. Um, I don't have any of those dogs anymore, but um, we've got documented out crosses that we've done over the years, and we've thrown. As an example, Dave Bennett um, up on the Mid-North Coast here has got um, has got a really nice line of collies that have some Kelpie in them. Um, he does he does very well in the cattle trialling scene. Um, he had some beautiful black dogs that I, uh, old Hank, I used as a sire there. He produced he made some magnificent pups, but we never kept going 
with that line. We just decided, we went on with it for 10 years or so, um, but we decided to just stick with the with that Karawara line primarily. Um, but yeah, we've, we've done it. And Barbara Cooper allowed me um, to register um, Hank's progeny as part Kelpie, part Collie, and it was all documented as such. And um, many other studs have done it. And, and I don't think there's a problem with it. I mean, I think people quickly forget that um, the Kelpie is derived from a Rutherford Strain Collie. So they're just Collies. That's not to get that, that shouldn't give us a license to go and bastardize all our pure Kelpies. But there's nothing wrong with putting Collie in, Collie in there. And look at how our magnificent um, stock, Australian stock horses were bred. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a mix of breeds. Yeah, a bit of everything yep. and something comes yep. out good sometimes. <laughs> well, another question here from Ethan Fremantle. What advice would you give to someone in their early years of working dogs in terms of how to reach out for advice and what to focus on? Oh, look, I think, you've got, I think you're in a better place than I was when I started because there's a lot more people willing to, willing to help and there's a lot of good help out there. You, you do have to... Um, sort out the um, the better help from the average help, I suppose. There's a lot of there's a lot of people offering advice and what have you, which is not always great. So go to the tried and proven people. Um, the one thing I I, I want to bring up in this and, and hopefully it'll help him. Um, so, so in regard to training, you need to train, you need to read as many books as you can and decide for yourself what type of dog you want to breed. Okay, you don't want to be changing your mind midstream. I'm still trying to breed the same, or I'm still I, I'm still breeding the same type of dog that I started with um, 20 odd years ago. So um, I, I didn't change midstream. Um, some many people have they've changed their direction and the style of dog that they've trained. So so get that right early in the piece, and you'll save yourself a lot of time and heartache. Decide whether you want to concentrate on paddock dogs or whether you want dogs that are going to be able to coolly and calmly. Um, work cattle or whether you want to, um, you know, work. Yes, you can have all rounders. Of course you can. Um, but you still have to have an objective and an idea of primarily what you're after. Um, the other thing is, is all, everyone who's breeding Kelpies needs to understand. And I'm, I get sucked in like everyone else. I get sucked into the best handlers, the biggest trials and watching what they do and what their dogs are like. Um, that's not necessarily good. The reason I say it is I've sold, and you, you can, I think you spoke to Kevin Howe just recently, and he probably said the same, and any breeder who's honest with you that's selling lots of dogs to the working dog industry, um, they're selling them for work. So when people come to see my dogs, they don't want to see what I've taught it to do. They want me to shut my mouth and they want to see what the dog's done when it's unclipped and there's livestock there. Because 99% of my clients um, are farmers that aren't good dog trainers. So the more natural ability in a dog, the better they look. And, and the easier it is to get a job done. They might have to move in with the dog more and not be able to park their backside wherever they want until it to go here and go there. They might have to shuffle around with the dog to get that job done. But to a farmer, that doesn't that that doesn't really matter. So don't go unless you're specifically wanting to breed trial dogs. You have to be aware of what the industry wants. So the big, if you want to be a 
a breeder for the for the for the for the livestock industry, um, trialing isn't very relevant. Now that's not putting trialing down. I love it. Um, I've been lucky enough to um, to be runner up in Australian Championships in a, in, in a New South Wales Championships um, in cattle trialing and and won some quite a lot of trials and placed many times in cattle trials and I really enjoyed it. But it is different to real work and um, and again some people might argue that but I, I I'm determined that it's that it's quite different. There's similarities in trials and work, of course there is, but when you're actually working, when I go to work and I want to clean stock off a hill or something like that, I want dogs I can just unclip and send them and then drive to where I'm going or check some troughs or something like that. Um, I don't want to be sitting on my quad shouting the dog where to go and what to do. That They need to know the job. And that's why I generally, my approach to, to livestock work is not always. Sometimes we just drop dogs off the bike and drive from the word go. But it's usually send a dog to gather, collect, Bring the stock to you, get your stock calm, quiet and under control and then take them somewhere. So, um, yeah, so to that question, you know, what advice and read as many books as you can. Decide what type of dog you want to breed. Do your homework and find out what bloodlines and what, what lines suit. If, if you go in the yard dog line, go and pursue the best um, yard dog yard dogs in the country. And, you, and they might not be at trials. They they might be at the, your local sale yards and things like that. So go and have a look. Go and do your homework. Um, but, yeah, do your homework. Decide exactly what you want before you start breeding so you don't change mid midstream. Um, and, yeah, and be aware, um, you know, as much as I totally admire the likes of um, Adam James um, and um, Jake Nolan and, and, and all that, you know, Robert Cox, Dave Motley, uh, Gary White, all of, I would have left plenty out. All those tri trialers, I'm in awe to watch them. But we're not selling dogs to those guys very often. That's yeah. pretty rare. So um, we need to be real to ourselves and understand that if we're going to be a breeder and we're going to serve the livestock industry, we need to know what they want. And a lot of them have their backup about trial dogs and they probably don't need to because there's some great trial dogs out there. But having said that trial dogs have got a high level of command in them and most working dogs on farms don't have, have a high level of command in them. So the more natural ability, the better. Cool. We'll keep punching through here, mate. We've got a few questions. Yeah, on, no, keep wrong. <laughs> on that note um, of what are, Becky's asked, what are your top tips for developing a strong relationship with a pup for the best chance of working success? Right on. Really good question. Um, pick the pup you like out of a litter. You've really got to like it. Um, so you pick a pup you like and you think that suits you. Um, I I like, the type of pup I like personally is bold but calm. Now they sound a little bit like opposing traits, but you do get it. You want a pup that's not scared of, of things and not touchy. But you all, but you don't, uh, but, but, um, but you want it, um, but you want it bold. You don't want, you don't want scared or touchy or anything like that, but, um, but you want it brave. So, um, and that's how they, I believe that's how dogs control livestock by being bold and brave um, and calm. I don't believe that busy dogs will ever instill calmness in livestock. 
And and my, my objective is always to work stock as calmly as possible. Cool. Daniel Wright has asked, over the years of breeding, have you found a certain family relationship mating? For example, auntie over nephew, uncle over niece, grandfather or granddaughter, um, consolidate blood more consistently and produce better quality offspring? Um, highly variable. I found that some bitches, um, and it probably happens with dogs too, but certainly with some of my bitches, their granddaughters are better than their daughters in general. So it does, that's not to say when it skips a generation, there's one generation of just rubbish. I'm just talking, when I refer to a good dog, I think I'm, in my mind, I'm talking to a very high class dog, an exceptional dog, um, a one in a hundred or something like that. So um, I think it can skip a generation, um, but I don't think there's a recipe for mother, mother over daughter, uncle over cousin or anything like that. I think the recipe, well, okay, so the recipe I go by is is our breeding program tells me the inbreeding coefficient. I try not to take too many dogs into the 20% inbreeding coefficient level. I've got some up in the 20s, but I try not to take too many up there or have them up there for too long. So I try and keep my dogs, you know, under 20% um, inbreeding coefficient. Um, but I still want repetitions of dogs that I know that were very good. So even... Even the dogs that I started with, I've got video footage and I can watch it anytime I need to sit down and have a look at where I'm going. Um, I can look at grandparents of the dogs I started with on video to make sure I'm on track. I'm keeping that same similarities in work, if that makes sense. So um, I don't think there's a recipe. If that's what he's asking, is there a recipe for no? No, I think it's more about saying, oh, you know, getting special dogs that you really like. And, um, you know, there's, there's pedigrees now that have got three crosses of my old Merlin in them um, and they pop in, you know, along that family tree. Um, same with Dot, same with, and, and, and what they bring with them is um, the, um, is, is the, the parentage behind them. So the further you go in a pedigree, the less, the, the less um, impact that, that that dog has but keep in mind and this is very interesting and until you get this computer and i don't breed on paper don't get me wrong but i know pat murphy showed me a, bre a pedigree only probably in the last five years and um you could look at influential dogs in in the pedigree and one of his most influential dogs in this litter of pups was a bitch that had been dead for 35 years so even though we say She's so many generations ago, she can't have an influence. She does have an influence because she because she's been repeated in that huge extended pedigree that many times that she becomes the most influential thing, dog in the pedigree. So um, I'm not saying breed off paper, but you do. it's nice to be aware of those sorts of things. So if you could have any of those old dogs back or bitches, who would it be and why? Oh, every one of the buggers and apologise to them how I trained with them then and and we do it all different now. Um, yeah, look, um, Merlin was a favourite and um, and he put up and, – and, and look, you know, so too was everything behind him. I, I haven't got a dog that I regret keeping and breeding from. Um, they're all special. I'd like to have them back now with with the skills that I've gained since, since them being young. Um, you can't do that, so – 
I just make it my job to get better and better with every pup I've got. And um, Dan came up the other day and had a look at some young dogs, starting to get a bit of handle on, on them and um, got a bit of fun ahead of us there, eh, mate? Some nice it young ones. It wasn't too bad at all, mate. There was a few young ones there alive. Yeah. But, yeah. But and they're good, good characters. Good pups. So, um, yeah, and I'm, and I'm getting a better handle on, on dogs. Now that I've got less dogs, I'm able to put more time into them. So I'm, I'm really, I've got to say, I'm really enjoying that. I'm getting relationships with some of these dogs I've bred in the past couple of years um, better than any relationship I've ever had with a dog, working relationship than I've had with a dog. And you mentioned old Merlin there. What, what makes a good sire to you? I think um, I think a really good sire needs to be a little bit over the top in, in, in what you want to propagate. So I think a really good sire has a bit of dirt in them, a bit of mongrel. Um, they've got to have heart or there's no point in going on with any dog. Um, and they've got to have the want to work with you. So um, there's a fair few things that come together, but... But as we, you know, we go back to earlier in the interview, um, as close to, to what I see as correct work as possible needs to be the number one criteria. But then they fall into all sorts of categories after that, you know, a bit of compliant, how, how compliant they are and well, how, 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 um, how deep they'll dig for you when things aren't going your way in a job. And we've had plenty of, plenty of time flat and every, so does everyone else. Um, so, yeah, a good size got to have that bit of dirt He's got to be as correct as you can find in, in regard to work. Um, and number one, you've got to be able to get your work done with him. Number one. Very cool. Sorry, mate, we're just working through a few different questions here. No, you're all good. Do you have a criteria that a bitch needs to meet to be able to breed for one? Yeah, look, again, um, bitches and size don't have two different criteria. Um, I guess the easiest way to explain it is I've got a list. I've got a whole bunch of boxes that I need ticked. So, and, and, and some of them can't be ticked until they're 12, 18 months old. Um, but if they keep ticking all the right boxes, so if they get around their stock nice when they're young, if I get on them on well with them when they're young, if they're a good type, if they've got a bit of heart, if they're not going to question themselves about walking in on a, on a sheep when they're when they're young pups that's that that might be arguing with them a little bit um all these things are ticks are ticks in boxes to them they tick enough boxes they keep staying here now uh, these are the pups that i that, that i keep to go on with they they tick enough boxes they keep staying here and then by the time they're 18 months if they've ticked enough boxes they become a sire so uh, a sire or a dam so there's a whole bunch of criteria um every attribute you could imagine but having said that some of them miss a box but make up for it elsewhere. So old Billy, even though Baru Billy, even though he's he was one of the toughest dogs I've ever bred, um, which which has got its pluses and got its minuses. Um, but he had no cast to him. His mother is a cracking casting bitch, his father was a cracking casting dog, their parents were cracking casters. Billy was just straight, and then he was a real pear-shaped <laughs> caster. And, and I didn't like that, but Billy had everything else that I needed. Um, and he filled a gap. He puts, he helped me put the strengths into some of my lines of dogs. So you've, you just have to have this master plan in your head of, it's like a jigsaw puzzle and taking, I'm going to need parts of him with that. 
And at the same time, they're all distantly related. Does that make sense? That's yeah. that line breeding thing. They're distantly related. Um, that's a really nice bitch. She's she's perfect. A little bit too much distance. Um, she does question herself sometimes when she's under heavy fire from cow and calf. So Billy needs to go to her. Just all that juggling around. And, and we've been doing that for 20-odd years now. And I, I do think it's working. I do think it's working for us. So, yeah, a whole bunch of criteria, male or female. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Do you believe it should be in a certain type of headspace or maturity level before breeding to her? Or from her? A bitch? Mm. Um, well, she's got to prove that she's <laughs> worth breeding from. I've bred from bitches that by the time they're – most of my bitches, and this is what I find a little bit different, um, a lot of people say to me they're – most bitches, most Kelvin bitches out there come in season before the 12 months of age. That's really rare in my camp. I rarely see a bitch in season until she's 14 months or so. And, and I've had numerous conversations with my vet. Should you join a 14 month old bitch? And she said, Scott, and he, you know, he says to me, he says, Scott, um, their bones fused between 10 and 12 months of age. So, so her bones are fused. She's fully grown structurally. She might fill out a bit more. Um, and if she was in the wild, she'd be in pup. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, but he said if, if they if they come in season early, their first cycle early, and they're structurally not mature, like pre ten months or something like that, no, don't join them. It's probably not the greatest idea. But but then again, some bitches by ten months of age, I know I'm going to breed from, so I wait till they're fourteen months or so, and I might breed from there, or or I might wait for the second season. It really doesn't matter if they're in the wild; they they go and pup. You know, humans try and make all these wonderful decisions about managing animals from human values. They're bloody animals. Like, what age do skinks breed? Maybe two days. I don't know. You know, like, um, it's not for us to decide. Have a look at what animals do in, in, in nature. And, you know, now once upon a time you didn't put bulls out with cows until they were three years old or something like Now they're saying get them out as young as you can with a few so they can start working and they're more able to cope with with, with bigger mobs and, and do the job better later. So, um. Uh, you know, age fourteen months for me, roughly speaking, for a bitch, um, and that and that that sort of happens with my dogs anyway. And some of the fourteen months, I don't even know yet whether they're quite good enough. I need to test them more because fourteen months. Sometimes I haven't some bitches I haven't got on cattle at fourteen months. Others I've got on cattle at seven months. It really depends on, on the on the dog, bitch, and how it's going and whether it's ready for cattle or not. Man, while while we're there, do you believe that a sire? Um, or a dam has more influence over the one in particular over their pups? Now, I've read a lot about that, and a lot of people try and say that the bitch has more influence. Um, I'd have to say definitive no. I've seen Merlin pups that are all like him, um, and I've seen a bitch's pups that are all like her. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and then I've seen litters that are half and half. So... In all honesty, I reckon we can overthink things too much. And I reckon humans are great at overthinking things and stuffing things up. So I think being observant um, is is really important and being practical is pretty important too. So people want to know what's the secret, what's the recipe. The recipe is evaluating dogs the right way. Um, I think Tony Parsons was a freak of nature when it came to evaluating the attributes of a dog. Um, and I believe that's why he's left me with the with the type of dog I've got because he was a freak. I mean, when he showed 
when he bred and showed um, Merinos, he won every ribbon there was to win. When he did it with poultry, he won every ribbon there was to win. He was a freaking archer when it came to selecting and breeding. He is a freak. The man's still alive. He's 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 still going well, but um, he's starting to pay the price of age now. So um, yeah. But I'm ever indebted to him, and um, and um, I'm a great believer that uh, yeah, what he did is is been the greatest thing. One of the greatest things anyone's ever done for me in my lifetime has helped me set up this this line of dogs here. What are your thoughts on AI, like using dogs that have been dead for some time compared to, you know, the best you can find today for live cover? Yeah, big believer in it. Go for it if you can. Um, the reason being is I've told you my philosophy in breeding, line breeding is important. So I've actually got, Tony Parsons has given me semen that he collected over 30 years ago. So I've got old Val's Grizzly there, Abernant Jim and all these dogs. We've had one try with it, but I think we try, the bitch we tried with was just a little bit past um, being right for the job. Um, I've had I've had a bunch of my dogs put down, and you know that semen will come out when when I need those dogs' influence back in my in my breed. And, and I think I really hope that this semen that Tony's left me that's that's thirty odd years old. If if we can bring in some of these old dogs that I know a lot about, and I've spoken to the men who work them. Um, they worked on, on big runs up in Queensland, Val's Grizzly and dogs like that. And um, I spoke to the men that had them worked them and, and man, they were, they were freakish dogs. So if I can put that semen back over bitches I've got here that have got some grizz in them, you know, got some of that dog's blood in them, that's just, that, that that's a magnificent, it's almost like having a bit of a time machine and being able to do a bit of a jump here and a jump there, which for a breeder is magnificent. Mate, how, um, how would you describe what feel looks like in a dog to yourself? And do you think it's something that can be trained or is it in a genetic setup of a dog? I don't think feel can be trained, no way in the world. Um, it's like some people are good around livestock and some people aren't. Um, and um, I think feel, for me, and everyone's going to interpret it differently, you only see feel if you've got the right stock to really see feel on, um, to see it in spades anyway um you need lights light sheep or something like that and you really need to see a dog that can manage them can gather collect and hold together and then shift when need be without overworking and and natural distance natural stop all all of that's part of feel in my opinion um and um that's certainly something that we always look for um, in our dogs, they've got to have some feel. That's all, all part of the part of the recipe. What do you feel is your best achievement or most memorable moment with dogs so far? Oh wow! Um, that's a real tough one, eh? Um, it was always a highlight when Merlin and I sort of got um, a second place in a. In Australian Championship up at um, Alstonville there one year. They were really tough cattle and in the Australian Championship you've got to run through a couple of rounds before you get to a final and then obviously perform in a final as well and um, that was really special to me because I let him do most of it on his own um, which he was pretty good at and, um, and he had to handle some really troublesome cattle and he did it well. Um, so that was really good but to be honest, I don't think there's a single moment. I think 
I think the dogs I'm left with and um, I'm, I, I, the other thing I'm very, very proud about when I look at the likes of um, Rachel Holmes, who has the um, Rosebank stud down there and most of her dogs she got off me and I know the sort of work Rachel does. They do dairy work, they do beef work and they do sheep work and she works with her dogs every single day and at the moment she's got better baru size than I've got because all my, I've got the young ones <laughs> yeah. coming on. But um, I'm very, very proud to think that I bred those dogs for Rachel and I'm very, very taken. You know, when a mother rings me up and says she lost a brother who used to do all the work with her years ago, um, you know, we lost him and, that, and Rachel didn't think she could go on working on the farm without him and all that sort of stuff. And now Rachel does it. And she said, you should see, she said, I sit on a hill sometimes and watch Rachel with the livestock and those dogs that, that, that she's got of yours. And she said, it just, it's unbelievable to watch. And Rachel's got a knack with dogs. So that is really, really special to me, really special. Uh, and I love the way she works the stock. No flogging the hell out of them. She just manages them properly. And she got real nice dogs and, She's got a great relationship with them, and now she's got two little girls, and they um, and, and they sit in their child seats in the tractors and in the and, and in the side by sides, and they all do stock work together. With Pretty the team cool. Of dogs. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and um, yeah, um, that that's and you know and other things like you know some really good clients up in Queensland when they ring you and tell you, you know, they put your dogs out there and don't speak to them for six hours on horseback gathering different mobs of cattle and putting them together and just taking them. Um, I'm, I'm proud of that sort of stuff too. That, that That's what I set out to do. So oh, That's that's cool, mate. That's real cool. And is there a message you'd like to get out of the working dog community? Um, yeah, look, let's just um, – I know we have our moments together um, and, and, and our disagreements in, in how we go about things, um, but I think um, – myself included, we need to work hard to be open-minded. Um, we need to be honest to the to the dogs, to our working dogs. I reckon a lot of them get uh, – I've seen too many dogs written off. They're actually pretty handy dogs. I don't think people put enough time and effort in. Um, I think people – yeah, and if we want to keep working dogs, that, that we're going to have the do-gooders on our shoes pretty hard, so we've got to work stock responsibly too. Um, we've got to stop being cowboys and we've got to show that working dogs are a huge asset to the agricultural industry. And I'm a great believer that quality working dogs make for safer and better lives for, for, for livestock handlers. And I reckon livestock end up with much better lives with good, calm, firm shepherding dogs and they do with dogs flogging them um and, and i just love to see us all try and lift our game in animal um in, in the stresses we put on animals i reckon i see too much of it look there's times my dogs have to bite and hit them pretty hard too but i think it should be over and done with very quickly and our dogs should be like electric fences bang done finished and shouldn't be carried on with that's how stock learn quicker i see far too many people constantly putting pressure on stock and giving stock no relief from it, both from their dogs and from the handlers themselves. And I reckon that's just bad stockmanship. So, yep, they can crucify me if they want, but that's my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's all about the livestock. It's actually, as much as we love our dogs, it's less about the dogs and more about the livestock because our dogs are nothing without livestock. And we need to be able to show the general public 
that our dogs can control and calmly manage livestock better than we can without them. Otherwise, we're buggered. <laughs> <laughs> Away from dogs, um, do you have a talent or hobby most people wouldn't know about? I've got a wife. She's been. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lovely. I've got a lovely wife and a, and a wonderful family, um, and I love fishing, and and just general generally traveling around Australia. So um, yeah, yeah, live for fishing, um, and I used to do a lot of surfing, but but mainly fishing these days, and. Um, yeah, and we're just getting ready to start travel again with with a team of dogs all over the place. You name it, we'll be there. Traveling. What about the what about the opal shining, mate? Yeah, a bit of that. That's all right. That's just a bit of downtime to um, stop me from going mad. I think just yeah, I don't <laughs> mind finding a few opals and then um, yeah, grinding them down and putting a bit of a polish on them. That's pretty cool. I'm I'm enjoying that. That's that's therapy, mate. <laughs> Mate, is there anything you'd like us to see uh, or like to see us introduce to Dog Talk? I'd like to see, um, I guess a couple of people have asked me, and, and, and I believe the same thing, um, just have a good, if you can just have a good mix of trial-oriented stuff and dead-set work-oriented stuff. So I'd love to see you um, interviewing people that are renowned stock people. Yep. rather than just dog people um, and how they use their, their dogs and some of them with limited command and all that sort of stuff. I, I think there's, don't get me wrong, I love trying and I'm going to trial till I die. I'm, I'm going to get back into trialing a fair bit in, in the upcoming years, but I think there's too much focus on it. It's not, I breed 1,200 dogs and, and a handful of them go, go to trialing. The rest, are, the rest are out there working. So I'd like to see Dog Talk concentrate on what dogs do day in, day out. Yep. Um, yeah, and promote the benefits of them. So on that note, who would you like us to sit down and have a chat with? Oh, man. Um, Who's that? <laughs> no, does that be a man or a woman? Um, no. Anyone, um, mate. I'd love you to have a talk to Susie Goodyear, but... Um, yeah, that'd that'd be great for me. Um, she may, she may not. I'm not sure, but um, she's taught me an unbelievable amount. One thing she's taught me a great deal of with dogs is patience. Um, she's and and she knows how to get, crawl inside a dog's skin. Um, I've met many men that are anywhere near the class of dog handler that, and stock person that Susie is. Um, so if you get her on that, it'd be good. It mightn't be the easiest task, but I'll see if I can give her a bit of a prod for you or something like that. Um, I wouldn't mind you also having to talk to someone like Gavin Carr up there in Queensland or something like that. He does a lot of stock work. That that boy's chasing cattle around day in, day out. So, yeah, have a yarn with him. I've just dobbed him in, so he'll be swearing like a trooper at the moment. <laughs> He's listening at the moment. So. <laughs> there you go, Gav, you're on show now, mate. <laughs> Put that in your pipe and smoke it, car. <laughs> <laughs> mate, well, it's come to that point of the night. Um, was there a question that stood out to you tonight? Um, yeah. the I think the young fella who asked what he might need to do to set up Start breeding properly. Is that is that right? Go back a few. Um, 
So you talk about a question about um the the advice in the early days. What advice would you give to someone in early days of working? Yeah, yeah. In terms of how to reach out exactly. for advice. And what exactly. I, I think that that's my favorite question. I know it was probably a convoluted answer, but um he needs to have a clear indication of his in his mind of what style of dog he wants to breed. Then he needs to find those dogs and start that line or, or, or carry on with that line as the case might be. Um, so that's that's my pick of the questions. Well, there you go, Ethan Fremantle. If you uh, want to get in contact with us, mate, and um, send your details, and you've got a bag of Enduro Plus um, working dog food on its way to you. So we'd like to thank everyone for jumping on board tonight and, of course, Scott, for your time. Um, it's been a great chat. Before we go, one more question. Would you rather fight one duck the size of a horse or 20 horses the size of ducks? Go again. <laughs> one, one duck the size of a horse or 20 horses the size of ducks? 20 horses the size of ducks. And why? Oh, man. Size is everything, they tell me. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, geez. well answered, mate. Well answered. <laughs> Too deep for me. I'm just a <laughs> No, mate, thank you very, very much. You're very generous, generous with your time tonight. So much appreciated. Uh, thanks to all our listeners. I haven't bored people too much, mate. <laughs> No, nah, it's all right, mate. No, there's, uh, there's plenty of information to take in there, but that's all right. We'll, uh, have to, we'll listen to it a couple of times and uh, hopefully it else soaks in. It's hard <laughs> to get anything to soak in between these ears anyway. So, <laughs> no, But thank you very much for your time, mate. Um, Thanks for having I, me. I really appreciate it. Not a problem, mate. I hope you have a great night. And please remember, we learn every day, and the day we stop learning will be a sad one for all of us. 100%. Absolutely. Thank you. Cheers. Good night.